everyone welcome back to the left page i am frank your always online historian academic writer and today i am here to talk about a very particular 1985 novel called white noise by don delillo and to talk about it i am joined by an amazing friend who runs an absolutely incredible show and has been doing fantastic work for quite some time he inspired me to do the left page and uh bunch of other things and a lot of my work and my politics have been aided helped and assisted by brett o'shea from revolutionary left radio welcome yeah thank you i'm excited i'm excited to be here for sure and thank you for the incredibly uh kind words i really appreciate that it's true though like you, you've been doing amazing work and to be able to spend some time chatting and uh, doing a, a bit of my own work with literature with you here it's pretty amazing absolutely i'm excited yeah. So you want to maybe talk a bit about why you chose this book since you chose it? Sure. Yeah. Well, it's funny because when we were figuring out a book to read, I just sort of looked back at a book that I had read many years ago. I think I read this for the first time in my early 20s. Um, and I remember really being impacted by it. And I think in retrospect, you know, having reread it now, I think the obviously big thing that it, it hit me with at the time and why it resonated so deeply with me was this persistent anxiety surrounding death that sort of haunts the entire novel and is certainly a, a main theme of the book. And through my teens and into my 20s, all the way up into an existential crisis that we can perhaps talk about later on in the episode, I too had this reoccurring, crippling, and anxious fear around my own mortality. And to, to see that fear of death in a culture specifically that, that that goes out of its way to sort of hide death and, and push death onto the fringes, um, hide it in hospice care and, and retirement homes and not really deal with it, that is hyper-focused on productivity at all costs, you don't really get a lot of real sincere explorations of death and the anxiety around it. People will become very uncomfortable if you try to talk about it. They'll, they'll poo-poo it. They'll make some joke and move on to a new topic. So I think at the time that really got me. And then when you said, let's pick a book, I, I said, I really liked that book, so let's do that. And it really gave me a chance to revisit a book that I really remembered. And I think this time around, you know, with my political growth, with my just intellectual growth more broadly, it it hit me a little different. I still like it a lot, and I think maybe we'll have some some differences there. I'm by no means a, an expert on, on literature. Um, I come out of out of philosophy and politics, so getting into to literature is sort of a, a side interest of mine. I've always enjoyed novels and and various authors and whatnot, but you know perhaps I, I have some blind spots that you'll be able to uh, point out and and exploit throughout this episode. <laughs> I mean, I, I come from a history background, so I'm filling those gaps literally <laughs> at the moment. <laughs> so uh, it's, uh, it's been a fun time doing that. Uh, sure. But yeah, I, I, I was telling uh, before we started recording that like I, I enjoy the book and I think there's a lot of interesting stuff and it's going to make for a great conversation. But there were a lot of things that I just didn't like or didn't necessarily gel with me. And we'll, we'll get on them. But yeah, it's... The, the fear of death, it's interesting because kind of how it can happen a lot. It, it is 
subterraneous for a lot of the novel and then it starts popping up and then it becomes a bit present mm -hmm. and just all around bo be it as facing your own mortality and mortality in others and understanding grief and how well we we don't so that's definitely something i don't know <laughs> i think that especially you know i'm fairly young <laughs> mm -hmm. so it, it doesn't it, it pops up quite a lot because uh you know climate change and everything going on and the pandemic <laughs> that becomes a, a persistent matter of facing like so i could die huh? mm. oh <laughs> but it still feels somewhat more distant or at least you know you're trying to especially as I, uh, I read and, and working a lot as well separately with gothic and horror literature where that comes up a lot so trying to engage with that and understanding like okay what is my engagement with mortality with my own death and that as a phenomenon and at times like a spiritual understanding of that mm -hmm. so it's something that that is also present here and, you know, kind of more relevant even today or these past couple of years or uh, recently and to, to remain so for quite some time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. There's a there's a prescience here that we can we can talk about. And I also think it's it's a very American uh, a novel. It's, it's very much about many things, but partially that fear of death manifesting in a sparkling, glimmering sort of facade of, of American society. Um, you know, these, these huge shopping malls, these huge grocery stores, a very comfy, cozy little suburban life where by all outward measures, um, there's no reason to fear, right? You've sort of been extracted from the nasty, brutish, and short life of, of uh, life in nature. And for some reason, instead of alleviating that fear, it, it somehow heightens it. There's like an asymmetry and a contrast that makes it even worse. And then the society itself, uh, the sparkling, glimmering facade of, of consumer capitalist American society is the thing that is causing the ecological crisis, causes the poisoning of, of his own body. And and so there's this two this is double edged sword. There's the the way the society appears, and then the rotten underbelly of that society. And if the pandemic and climate change and the what he wrote this in '85, so the 35 some years since he wrote this has proven anything is that that is more and more true. Except the facade is starting to crumble, and the rotten underbelly is starting to appear more obvious and explicit to more and more people. So in that sense, I think it's an interesting read to go back to the 80s and and try to you know read about read an american novel about american society at that time and think of how things have shifted and changed in really interesting ways and that's part of the reason i like this book as well oh yeah and especially a lot of different themes feel very familiar think about knowledge and information and we'll we'll get to that soon and about news and disbelief um especially with discussions lately of like fake news and the like hmm. but even the ecological disasters and climate change and this this glistening mask that is very present in american society and exported all over the world mm -hmm. the book feels very recent at the same time that it feels very much of its time mm. you know that's those kind of things absolutely especially in terms of like style i think that that becomes a very clear, at least in such a... And I guess that is sort of the point of like a very American portrayal of American society. Mm -hmm. That feels 
very clear <laughs> that felt very clear to me <laughs> but it was also a, an interesting experiment and i think it works there, there are some things and especially as, as we talk about academia mm-hmm. that is yes this this could this could pretty much basically happen in america and maybe a few other places but not to this degree yeah. uh, <laughs> so that struck me like yes i i can definitely believe this yeah the parody of of academia and the parody of hyper specialization and the sort of self importance that you know, a certain sort of academic can can take on um, and the sort of detachment from everyday life that can sometimes be seen in in those in those areas I think struck me as struck me as particularly funny and interesting and you know that's the thing about the book. Um, I don't know if you agree with this, but I, f- I found it like hilariously funny, <laughs> even reading it back then. I remember laughing out loud multiple occasions, reading it again, it like some of the same exact little passages make me break out laughing. I had to read some out loud to my wife as I'm going through it at night before we go to sleep, um, just like sort of howling at some of the some of the uh, the hilarity in the book. Did you find it to be a, a funny book at all? I think that at times it can be quite funny. I found it mostly annoying. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's all right. <laughs> but the like, if taking it at a, a lighter tone, it's probably a lot more funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me ask you this then: what what is the uh, if you could summarize your your main critique, or you know, pin it down into like a, a couple sentences? What would you say is the fundamental flaw or the reason that you did not particularly enjoy the novel? I think the, I'm making a comparison as well in my head, which is kind of unfair because of what a, a bit about how like, and it's, I think this in terms of like genre, because as I was researching the book a bit, I found that it was sort of classified as a postmodernist book. Mm-hmm. And we, we can go on whatever the hell that means or not. Mm-hmm. But regardless of that, it is trying to tell a story in a different sort of way. So it, it incorporates like, news it incorporates like uh ads and propaganda of the time there's a sort of disconnection between the characters events and even the stories the sto- the chapters are, t- are very short most of the time mm-hmm. so the story feels a lot very cut up which i think is kind of the point too mm-hmm. but i think stylistically i just don't think it works because i don't think it's doing anything particularly different it's incorporating these events as a sort of cut up story so I don't really like that, but I think what sort of, and, and I was mentioning that it annoyed me a, a bit more, especially because I am, th- there's a lot to this portrait which is very kind of realistic and kind of pessimistic or like pushing characters and sort of portrayals to a certain extreme. So like the, um, the, fami- the family relationships, some of the characters' attitudes and portrayals, Maybe if I did take the book a, a little less seriously, I would have enjoyed it more and f- actually found it funny. Mm-hmm. But trying to take it, you know, kind of seriously and facing the book, it, it struck me as a bit, I'm not going to say high-minded, uh, because I don't think that's it. I think, and sorry for not giving a short answer that's at okay. all. That's okay. <laughs> it's a complicated topic, yeah. Yeah. But it being, it trying to portray this societal experience and via characters that I just, I, I don't think, I didn't find them, I found moments of them realistic and others just very frustrating and just sort of, okay, I see what you're trying to do or portray this, but I don't, mm-hmm. I don't, okay, I get it. So mm-hmm. um, that was a lot of my experience reading it. That's fair. It's like, yeah. yeah. Or go ahead. Do you have anything else to say on that? Yeah, no, I think it's just it. It's, 
it feels like the what it's trying to put forward and present via these characters is reinforced a lot of the time. So it's like, yes, I get what you're saying. Is there more to it? Mm. And in that sense, like, this is going to be very harsh, uh, but I, uh, yeah, <laughs> I'd rather have read an essay than a novel if this was the point. Mm, I see. And I, I'm being a bit overdramatic to it. Uh, it's not all that, but I feel like there was a lot to it that was trying to put forward these particular ideas or at least these particular interpretations and these images or scenes that I don't, I won't say feel repetitive, but can wear me, that wore me out, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's fair. And I I think we talked about this before we started recording. I had a friend Mm -hmm. uh, who said that, you know, she, her critique was that it, it is solipsistic, right? Or another way to say it is it's sort of over-intellectualized, it, it's navel-gazing, it, and, and I think that is, that is a, a fair critique. Do you think that general idea sort of applies to what you're, what you're saying here? Yeah, I think so. And I think that's what's interesting. I, I, I'm not sure I'd do it, but maybe in a few years or sometime, like reread it with a sort of lighter tone. Mm. Because I was reminded at one time or another, but I just I didn't connect enough with the book to, to pu- pu- push forward that reading of a Brazilian realist novel from the late 19th century called The Posthumous Memories of Brass Cubas, which is sort of similar, but I feel like the humor is even more pronounced Mm. as this sort of uh, wealthy, elite, aristocratic Brazilian landowner and how he's like, he attempts to be sort of high-minded and navel-gazing, but... And like this is if if you try and take it seriously, you're probably gonna end up annoyed. Mm. But if you take it lightly, it's like, oh, this is this is pure satire. Then that makes a lot of sense. Mm. And I wonder if taking white noise as satire would be more amusing or more fruitful to read. I think. I think that's right. And and I think I I think I take it more like that than perhaps you did. And maybe that that explains some of the disparity in our enjoyment. I mean, I think this is a hyper sort of self-conscious classic postmodern literary work that is meant to satirize a certain sort of person a certain sort of culture and the, the humor is very dark black humor and it is i think delillo is is conscious that he's writing these characters in this sort of absurd and you know overly self-infatuated navel-gazy to use that term again way and so i really do read it in that in that spirit, and I think that light satirical sort of reading uh, might lend it a different quality. So perhaps if you ever go back and reread it, I think that would be helpful to to take that approach to it. Not that necessarily one is wrong or right, but I can certainly agree with you that if you sort of take it at face value and don't emphasize the satirical parody aspect of it, that it, it can come off as overly solipsistic and sort of taking itself way too seriously. Etc. So maybe maybe that explains a lot of the disparity here. Yeah, yeah, I think that makes sense. Interesting, because like it, it's part of the book all the same. Like there are moments where there is the sort of sincerity to it, mm-hmm. and it's like mm, interesting. But it, I don't think it was ever enough to on its own like driving to like oh this is satire. Like oh maybe maybe this is satire. But yeah, I think you've you've generally convinced me to like maybe someday I'll go back <laughs> to it and look at it under this different view. Cool. Uh, it could be fun. It could be. It could. It will definitely be more fun. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> All right. Well, where do you want to go next with this? Just because uh, you know the story is there are a few different things, but just as a simple like 
this is kind of what happens in the book. Uh, we follow sort of the, a time in the life of Jack Gladney. Um, his family, his, you know, in uh, adventures, so to speak, in his in this sort of small town of blacksmith. Mm-hmm. And his a bit of about his life, having created this field of Hitler studies, his family relationship, what was called like the airborne toxic event, uh, which a, a lot about climate change and shall we say like um, reactions to it or actions to it or it's sort of reception, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot more in that, in the final section of the book, which is sort of Dilorama, which is a lot about this fear of death and confronting or facing the, these aspects. So it, it's essentially uh, Jack Lanny is this main character that we follow. We follow mostly his thoughts, his sense, uh, his relationship with his family, with his children. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, that's essentially it. Mm-hmm. So, uh, where do you want to start? Want to start with academia, with Hitler studies? <laughs> <laughs> we could talk. We could talk about that. We could talk about what postmodern. Maybe touch a little bit on postmodern literature itself, because I think yeah, this. That sounds good. Yeah, this book is written in 1985, or at least that's when it's published. Um, what, I think it's his really his first breakout novel, and it goes on to influence the David Foster Wallaces and the Franzens and a bunch of other American postmodern writers in the next couple of of decades. And you know, postmodern literature, postmodern anything—it's a huge sort of uh, bag of things that you pull from. But some elements of postmodern literature is this self-consciousness, this this irony, um, this dark humor, this hyperrealism. The playing on the Baldriard concept of of a similar uh, simulacrum, um, the concept of the hyper real. Uh, there's a quote from Baldriard. I can't even ever say his name. How how would you say it? Uh, Baldriard. I I I, 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 I pull, pull it from my uh, sort of non-existent French accent, <laughs> but which I can replicate fairly well. Uh, Baudrillard. Okay. Yeah, it's better than I'll be able to do. I, I remember I, I said uh, I once pronounced Althusser as Althusser, <laughs> trying to be a little too <laughs> French, and uh, got a biting email uh, just chastising me for it. <laughs> so oh. I try not to to pronounce things. Um, but you know, the, a quote from him is this this whole idea of like the the replication, the simulation of the real, the idea that like the, the you're substituting signs of the real for the real itself. And that comes up sort of implicitly throughout the, the the novel, how it's structured. And I think that gets a little bit into the irony and the satire we were just discussing. But then it also yeah. becomes explicit when like the airborne toxic event happens and you have this, uh, this simuvac sort of organization, which is a simulated evacuation. And they're, they, they're all about simulating disasters and practicing on dealing with them. Um, but in this con in this context, a real disaster is happening, but they're still conceptualizing it as if it is them simulating a real disaster. So again, it's a sort of disorienting postmodern sort of thing that that happens there. And then with the with the toxic airborne event itself, um, you know, I think we re- we can read back into it climate change and in the middle eighties. I'm not sure how many people knew about it. Like scientists knew about it. Exxon Mobil certainly knew about it. Um, and the, the the stories were starting to appear, but it was still pretty fringe, I would think. 
So I think what this, what the airborne toxic event is, is more about is like just the toxic pollutants of industrial or post-industrial American society, the pharmaceutical companies at this time, um, the big eco crisis was the depletion of the ozone layer. So I think that's what he's really focusing on with the airborne toxic event. But reading back, um, you can you can play into themes of pandemic and climate change quite well. This amorphous cloud of destruction that is coming towards us, right? Um, you could definitely see that as climate change itself. I don't know exactly what what he himself was thinking, but I would think in in the cultural moment of the time, it was more about like just toxic pollutants and and corporate runoff and the ozone layer itself. It just so happens that the uh, very systems that created those things go on to create. Uh, climate change more broadly so yeah I, i think it's sort of this kind of prelude to the larger discussions of climate change that you that aren't here because as you put it like it wasn't that widespread but this is sort of in that same line or one of the points of it these types of contaminations these spillages and the like mm-hmm. and i yes uh i kept thinking about Bosriar as I as I read it, uh, because not only are they treating reality as a simulation, but afterwards they remain around the town to keep watch if the contaminant levels are diminishing, if everything's okay, mm-hmm. and also running other simulations. <laughs> and when an actual sort of contamination happens... People don't react as they simulated and prepared to do. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> by that point, you, the, those things are intrinsically lost. Like the simulation is of far higher value than reality or possible reality can ever be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well said. And that that point I made earlier about um, like the the underside of American society, it it is the thing that's creating these ecological crises that poisons uh, Jack Gladney. You know, we can talk about whether he's really poisoned or not, but you know um, that he believes that he is poisoned by this airborne toxic event because he gets out and pumps gas for two minutes while the cloud is hovering over him. Um, But I think that theme is also reintegrated into the novel itself implicitly through the sunsets that take place after the airborne toxic event. So because of the pollutants in the sky or maybe the microbacteria released to break up the pollutants in the sky, the sun sets in Blacksmith, which is just like a generic suburban Midwestern small town, are beautiful. They're they're like awe-inspiring. Everybody notices them. There's like it's a very more intense sunset than anybody's ever seen before. And so that I think is speaking to that earlier theme of the facade of the sparkling, glimmering American consumer society, this this sort of disorienting glamour to it um but at, but it's it's shaped and structured and is given rise to p- through the sort of downstream effects of what it takes and how hard it hurts the planet to create um that glimmering uh, facade and i think the sunset and the pollutants and the, and the fact that the sunsets are much more beautiful after the chemical event uh is is another way of weaving that theme into the story itself yeah because contamination and the these violence these disasters are they are attractive by by the characters throughout the story but now it's throughout this event throughout, even after all this it also has this sort of astonishing beauty to it mm-hmm. and it's like in a sense even we as readers are sort of like 
But look what happened after. Let's look at all at this majestic beauty now after this horrible chemical spillage. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, you know, philosophically speaking, there's that there's the concept. Um, I think it comes from Kant, the Kantian sublime. And for for Kant, the sublime is this equal mix of, you know, spectacular beauty and awe-inspiring terror. So, you know, maybe watching an, an intense cloud or intense storm, you know, come in over your city or this uh, a, a giant tidal wave, you know, rolling in from the ocean or looking up at the night sky when there's no light pollution and just being sort of disoriented by the, the expanse uh, of the cosmos itself. Uh, you know, in, in Kant's terminology, he, he talks about this as being the sublime, this mixture of beauty and terror. And uh, I think that theme is like the philosophical grounding of, of that particular theme uh, more broadly, which I found to be to be interesting. True. It, it makes sense, especially having had this, although it is scary, it is impressive. The cloud itself is a sort of v- quite a view, mm-hmm. especially as like more helicopters appear and illuminated and <laughs> all around it. So it is the choice of words that the airborne toxic event, it, it really is an event in a sense that, and I think this book has an interesting sense of that as like, there isn't a, a capital E event that is sort of like an absolute doom, an apocalypse, so to speak. But there are there are occasional events that are like incredibly passing and ephemeral. Mm. But as a societal, as as you know, the the poisoning, as death, as the fear of death, as these relationships break down, and all that that we, that we see throughout the story, there isn't anything in particular to trigger those. Mm. They're just there in the background, happening. Mm. It's this idea of and especially recently in regards to our situation, like this slow collapse and there isn't this capital E event. Mm -hmm. The one that is in the actual story even then is incredibly passing. And like, yes, there are memories, there are its effects, its contaminants really in Jack Laddie, regardless of whether they're there or not. It's not the, the absolute change. It's very, it's one point, it's one moment, and then it's, it's sort of fading away, mm-hmm. although its effects and its others like it are there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it lives on in you know, presumably inside of of his body. The men in Milex suits and the German shepherds stick around for a long period of time, and so it becomes sort of integrated into the the overall society itself, and just becomes the background noise. Um, you know, part of the white noise that the book is named after these, <laughs> the sort of background ambient chaos of American society. Sometimes it's little chunks that the TV in another room, you know, pierces through your consciousness, little snippets from the radio, or it's these, these, yeah, this non-event really uh, that lives on in, in these various ways. And, you know, thinking about the non-event event is sort of interesting in light of climate change. Because the climate change is never going to be one big event. It's not going to be like, you know, the aliens come down and now all of a sudden this is the event and everything is, you know, inexorably changed afterwards. It's this slow bleeding into reality. And that's sort exactly. of that's sort of its 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 terror is that we've seen over the pandemic, I mean Brazil and America specifically 
how much death people will accept, how quickly people adapt to a new situation. Oh, we have a global pandemic that none of us have ever lived through and have no idea what to do. At first, there's a lot of terror. Then there's political arguments. Then it just becomes you're on that side. I believe in masks and vaccinations. I'm on this side. I don't believe in masks. You know, and then it just gets absorbed into the, the general ambient background noise of society. Same with mass shootings in American society specifically. When they first started happening, it was huge. You know, Columbine was talked about for months on, on every major news channel. Now we get three a day, and, and unless there's 50-plus people dead, nobody even notices. Um, and so it's it's this terrible, horrifying reality that, in this case, American society, but societies perhaps more broadly, can just absorb and adapt to these new things. And so that is that sets us up for, for climate change. You know, How much of this will be adapted and integrated and become the background white noise of our everyday society, and what will it take to make people – you know, rise up in mass and demand real structural change. The pandemic killed a World War One and a World War Two amount of Americans combined, <laughs> um, and and half the country didn't even believe it was real. Uh, so so that sort of creeping terror is something that I think is going to become more and more relevant as climate change and its effects begin to continue and and intensify the raining down upon us. Yeah, this this entire discussion of information and understanding these these events as non-events as things that become incorporated that are like oh this is just the new normal mm -hmm. which is one of the worst expressions i've ever heard in my entire life <laughs> um especially late last year and so on but it very much is that notion of like oh this is just another thing to deal with it becomes new white noise it's not it's not a real concern it's not something to be worried about it's just it's just another thing that you can carry on day by day. Mm -hmm. And it, it's incredibly interesting because, you know, talking and thinking about the novel and uh, as I was making the outline too, one of the things that I did forget, uh, and I think it's sort of the point, early on in the story there is this sort of contamination in the school mm. in the city. Mm. And at least one of, I'm not sure, I don't remember how many people die, but at the very least one of the people in the, with Milex suits in the, investigation team dies from it and nobody knows what it is and it's just there and then it's like oh it becomes background noise mm -hmm. we don't know what happens elsewhere like we imagine oh it was fixed and things went back to to school and everything carried on <laughs> but it was it's pretty scary thing but it just another part of background noise mm -hmm. yeah you yeah, know in that sense it the title is incredibly key to it it's about these various white noises that start to come together that is that are at times like events that are contaminations that are spillages that are these dangers these accidents these horrible things but they're just oh it's just another thing mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. carry on exactly yeah and with the with that earlier event with of the school this is this is impacting children you know like as a parent yes like that you would be you would be horrified at this but it is just sort of accepted and sort of you know, hand waved away as if not a big deal. They're handling it. The experts are taking care of it. No reason to really worry. Um, and it kind of just reminded me as you were talking about, um, I was just talking about mass shootings and like, you know, Columbine was huge, but then mm -hmm. we had Sandy Hook, which was also huge. I mean, little baby kindergartners mowed down by the dozens. And we just integrated that as well. And, you know, in American society, that was the moment of like, are we going to do something about this settler gun culture um, in American society, or are we not? You know, if if going into a school 
um, as a 19-year-old person with severe you know, mental illness uh, and mowing down a bunch of kids isn't going to make us even ask for background checks at gun shows. <laughs> I mean, what will it take? And it, the truth is, nothing will be able to, to stop it because it's just the background culture of American society. So mass shootings are just going to keep happening. And ever since then, they have done just that. And, you know, this book, you can critique it for, for being solipsistic and navel-gazy and all the things that we talked about earlier. But I think there also is, if you if you pull back the surface a little bit, a genuine critique of capitalism, yep. of consumer society, of the ecological catastrophe necessitated by the construction of American society and the pathology of American citizens uh, in our society. And, and for that reason... That's something I think I, I largely missed as a much younger person with, when my politics weren't fully fleshed out. Um, but as my polit- my political um, understanding has grown, I can sort of see much more of that in, in, on a second reading than I did on the first. Oh, yeah. That, that much is very clear, I think, because while there is a sort of uh, – there's a great deal of satire and criticism elsewhere and, and this very <laughs> dark humor, there is also um, – an engagement and understanding of like via certain images via a certain even the the, the you know we're, we're talking about reality and simulation that is a pretty important understanding of how to engage with like with these disasters in terms of preparation understanding and this whole idea of like media and uh, this american culture which is a, a lot of the time like just this consumer culture and just this sort of cultural domination via via these larger brands and you know we we can think and consider how that has even uh, strengthened itself in in the past couple of decades Mm -hmm. but there is a great deal to understand to to get from from this book that allows this critique to happen that the book is also doing and i think that regardless of the book's own limits and even getting the satire or understanding its limits and, and whatever taking all that into account the book also gives you interesting tools to criticize and to understand American society. Mm-hmm. And especially reading this book younger, I can imagine that it offered some very interesting tools and readings that you maybe wouldn't have otherwise. And totally. that right now, okay, you look at something else as something that engages with other types of aspects or that has a very different perspective than just the, the satirical and ironic one, but that served its purpose in its time and it was incredibly interesting because i think it is mm-hmm. even if uh, it, it didn't necessarily was that enjoyable an experience or i didn't personally like it as much or have some critiques of it i still think it can and it does serve its purpose i mean we're here talking about it and it's giving us the tools and the possibility to have this larger discussion mm-hmm. about the themes the story and beyond and that is good on its own too yeah yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you know, the, the critique, as you were talking, I, I keep thinking of things when, when you say other things, but uh, the uh, idea that the role that consumption plays in American society, uh, you know, the, he, this was written 16 years before 9-11, but 
Delillo would not be surprised at all in the wake of 9-11 that George Bush came out, if you remember, um, and told Americans, keep shopping. Like, that was the big message right away. Oh. <laughs> it was keep shopping because, you know, with this terrorist attack, everybody's shaking. The economy, which is just completely driven by, you know, conspicuous, endless consumption, uh, we needed that to continue going, even in the wake of, of this, this this apparent tragedy. And so Bush came out and actually said that, you know, Americans, the best thing you can do for your country right now is to continue shopping. And that would that could be in the pages of this book as like a satirical, ironic comment from some leader. Um, but that is just American society. And so I thought I thought that was interesting. And then as he's this is in the 80s, he's talking about the effect of technology on our social relations, you know, the the truth being mediated through the TV and the radio, and part of the whole idea of white noise is it's this background hum of of media and television and radio sets, and uh, that sort of distorts our thinking and creeps into our minds um, and becomes the sort of mediation between us and our own reality. Well, that's only become more and more true with uh, the rise of the Internet and social media. Again, in the 80s, so the very early days of the Internet when most people weren't even on it, and the Internet makes no appearance in this book. It's just TV and radio. But that's just become more and more true, uh, this this sort of mediating your experience of reality through back then TV and radio, today social media, and it's getting further and further flung from the actual reality and truth on the ground for instance, here in the U.S., we have, and I'm sure your right wing mirrors this in a lot of ways, the right wing in America is now just a completely conspiratorial party. It, it operates on a whole other plane of reality. Um, anti, Anti-vaxxers used to be a pretty fringe um, aspect of society that everybody, politics aside, would, would largely make fun of. And now it's just the basic baseline belief of uh, of one of the two major parties in American society, the idea that the election was stolen from Trump, right? A, an objectively untrue fact is now believed by over 75% of registered Republicans in American society. Um, and that really shows how the, the truth is just utterly detached from reality. And because of technology like social media and, and uh, the Internet more broadly and TV shows like Fox News, it can be bent into any shape that is serviceable to certain interests that have the money to do the bending. Um, and so, yeah, that as we've said earlier, those things are just becoming more and more true, not less true, as American society sort of circles the drain. Yeah. Yeah. It's... It's not too dissimilar here in terms of like it's just another deep conspiracy that oh it, it it's I mean to get a, an example even from before uh, Bolsonaro became president that because he was stabbed mm-hmm. before during the campaign before the election and there was this whole idea that like oh but he was apparently a member from one of the left parties and it was all a large conspiracy in order to stop him and it's like he was he was apparently someone who acted violently due to some personal issue and something is mm. it, it was never very clear but it was definitely not something like this but it was all about connecting it to these particular worker labor parties mm. and that oh they are the ones conspiring against and even trying to kill him um when that was just blatantly not true mm-hmm. and a lot of that information was false and misleading and you know even nowadays we're talking about information and, and that 
on the one hand, we have the, these highly conspiratorial far-right and extreme right-wing uh, parties and groups, and we also have, you know, liberal media just, you know, <laughs> uh, we have an expression in Brazil, uh, which is incredibly useful for that, which is basically to use a rag to clean it up mm. uh, as if that was possible. Mm. And just, you know, trying to, but, oh, but it's about this and that. It's not about this. Like, I read uh, now absolutely awful article some months <laughs> back about how, like, oh, but it is actually the repression to fascist ideas and stopping them from divulging their thoughts that actually was responsible for their growth or that assisted <laughs> it. And I was like, shut up, <laughs> shut up. Absurd. That's blatantly not true. And it's just awful. <laughs> <sighs> yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's incredibly scary. And like with climate change too, like there's that whole element there where we have a huge chunk of our society that just doesn't believe it's true. Um, yeah. That it's just not happening. And it's like the signs are all around you. Like the West is on fire every summer. I just went up to uh, Seattle during the, the hottest it's ever been in Seattle in recorded human history. Um, you know, droughts, floods, everything. It could not be more clear. And yet, no matter that the reality is right there in front of you, there's still a huge chunk of people who just absolutely refuse to believe it and think it is all a conspiracy by the communists to overthrow capitalism. <laughs> it is fucking deranged. Um, you know, Bolsonaro is sort of an interesting figure because we only get snapshots from Brazilian politics. And it seems every time I see a picture of Bolsonaro, he has like a feeding tube and he's shirtless on a gurney somewhere. Um, hopefully... Oh, yeah. He's he's not looking great at all. Like, he, he looks like shit. Die, yeah, I know. What the but fuck? <laughs> he is he's all, he's in the worst state you've ever seen. Uh, I, I it, it... I love Sorry. the I love the idea of a, a big machismo man, and every time I see him, he's keeled over with a catheter shoved up his ass. Pretty much, it's it's very much pathetic in the worst sense, and then and, and this is like the level of conspiracy, the level of like belief in in, in this group or in the far right that oh, but it's just it's him powering through, <laughs> it's him being strong for his children, for his family, for his country. <laughs> And, like, he's just being an asshole yeah. the whole time. He's sitting in his own diarrhea and vomit, and somehow that's still a sign of his uh, <laughs> his vitality. Yeah, basically. Hilarious. That's pretty much it. God. Uh, oh, something I, don't, I actually don't want to forget to mention, mm -hmm. and I'll do it now. There's been, amongst the various sort of propaganda that, and ads that we get lately, uh, especially here in Brazil, amongst, you know, various coaches and day traders wanting you to get your first million and those pyramid schemes. Mm -hmm. We also get, like, certain far-right, pretty much, groups. There's like, oh, no, but you need to educate yourself properly. So the latest one that I've been seeing, well, there's one that's called Parallel Brazil, which is, I mean, the latest, if I can even call it such, documentary, is about how the the smoke that comes from the Amazon rainforest fires are from the disinformation and fake news and mm. not from actual fires. And I'm like, oh fuck God. off. Oh my God. Seriously. It's basically like uh, propaganda for the agribusiness. Yeah. It's yeah. just it. It's like, and there's this guy saying how like, oh, the agribusiness is peace. I'm like, are you serious? Mm. Are you even serious? Absolutely um, wild. So yeah, that was, that was vile. <clears throat> and the latest one, it's called Uncommon Sense. That like, oh, you need to educate yourself and you need to read properly. And the latest that I saw, very dramatic, uh, was like, 
what was the script again? Uh, the Pentagon is not only investing in military technologies. Yes, that Pentagon. Uh, <laughs> uh, but it's also investing on disinformation and not just via fake news. Have you noticed how the media ejectivates you or ejectivates us, uh, calling us fascists, uh, negationists, alt-right, obscurantists? Come to this class, and I will show you how they do that. Oh and you know how it's called? Oh. Infowar. Amazing. Beautiful. <laughs> I couldn't make this shit up even God if I tried. Damn. That is absolutely horrifying. And you know, speaking of, of postmodernism, you can talk about postmodern literature or philosophy, but there's postmodern culture, um, a la Frederick Jameson. And one of the things that, that happens and is happening and continues to happen is this fracturing of narrative reality. Um, this yes. fractioning of reality into any you could you know break it into a million pieces, pick up any piece you want, and see whatever you know morbid, grotesque reflections of reality you want to see in the thing. And I think that is behind both the right in Brazil and the right in uh, America's complete delusional spiral into conspiracy land. And with the Amazon in particular, I, I do have a question about that because you know we're watching it up here. We see stuff like now, like at least a section of the Amazon is is uh, no longer sequestering carbon, but is is a net releaser of it due to the slashing of the Amazon for cattle raising and soybean production. Is it is is it just a huge story all over in in Brazil? Or I mean, I know the right wing has its own absurd funhouse mirror version of it, but is like the mainstream media covering it as like a urgent issue? It's very much the white noise. Like mm. it's there, but it's uh, what can you do? I mean, there are various indigenous groups and peoples like actively protesting and, you know, doing what they can to stop this. Because, you know, in, in terms of uh, law projects and the like to basically expand the agribusiness and to allow this confiscation or this usurpation of land a lot of the time um, from proceeding and carrying on at horrifying speeds. Mm-hmm. So it's it's barely covered. It, it shows up occasionally. It, it is an active ongoing problem, very much so. And what we follow and what we end up being shown a lot of the time is sort of these occasional moments or situations of like, oh, there's this new project and these various groups are protesting about it, although I'm following them and and trying to get more of what they're actually trying to do in a a longer run, not just, oh, it's because this specific thing. No, it's it's a larger scope. Mm, mm. Um, But a lot of the time it it has become this background noise. Oh, the the Amazon rainforest is being destroyed. Yeah, sucks. Mm. And what we see, I think, are like these sort of more vile ways of increasing or expanding or accelerating that process in terms of allowing these lands to be owned by agribusiness, by these larger landowners, and, you know, basically taking land from indigenous peoples, even more so. Mm -hmm. So that is pretty much how it's going. Like, you know, they're resisting, absolutely, Mm -hmm. uh, in all forms ways and shapes but it is very much uh, an ongoing situation that constantly threatens to get worse and worse in in its uh, dynamic so to speak yeah 
Yeah, I feel like it's going to come to a, to a head at some point because something like the Amazon Basin and the Amazon Rainforest more broadly is just so, so crucial to the overall health of the planet and the biosphere yeah. that there might eventually either Brazil gets its shit together um, through indigenous resistance, getting Bolsonaro out, you know, getting somebody like Lula or somebody even further left into office, etc., and protects the Amazon. Or at some point, like, other countries are going to see that this needs to be stopped by, you know, this is this new world we're entering where nobody's sequestered in their national borders anymore. The problem has spilled out of national borders and it is all global all the time. And the, the contradictions that that gives rise to, I, I do think also that there is a death drive in the, in the right wing, specifically in, in settler colonial societies, this, this death drive, you see it in Bolsonaro, fuck it, burn the rainforest. You see it in Donald Trump, you know, climate change is a hoax made by the Chinese, um, like drill, baby, drill. Uh, you know, Trump opened up millions of acres that were once publicly protected lands and to hand it over to the fossil fuel corporations for plundering and extraction. And it's it's like this 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 pathology in the settler mentality that is just it would rather just destroy everything and go down in a blaze of unglory than it would to just stand back and take into account other people and think about the future. Um, it's really morbid and the, the fracturing of narratives and this, this, this extreme drive to plunder and exploit the last few, you know, areas of the planet while the whole fucking thing burns. It is incredibly, incredibly scary. And I think properly pathological. Yeah, no, I, I think that makes sense because it's such a level of like devouring everything that can be taken mm -hmm. all the time that it is astonishing and, and it, it is very much scary but in a sense it's like it goes beyond beyond any sort of reason or even emotion it, it's too much and it is I, I think it's no exaggeration to put it as pathological to the extent degree and intensity that it is and that it has been going mm -hmm. uh, lately a lot of the time yeah yeah, no other animal does to its environment what the human animal does to its environment. It's horrifying. All right. Well, do you want to keep talking about this book? <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> I mean, we. Uh, I I do love that we talked about this, uh, this question about media, uh, information, and ecology, uh, because uh, it's it's an interesting conversation to be had, especially because. A lot of the time I felt when it was starting to become a thing that it was understood a lot by liberal media that it is, oh, the danger of fake news and this new thing as an event, when it, even that, that's a very strong push because it's not really, these are just better weaponized now. Mm -hmm. You know, fake news are as old as human history, pretty much. Mm -hmm. And that's why... To talk about this point in specific, uh, the book sort of a lot of the discussions feel familiar. Be, uh, for example, like in the airborne toxic event, we have the characters leave and go to sort of camping site that's far from from the city in order to be away from like the billowing cloud or whatever name it mm -hmm. takes. It takes multiple names mm -hmm. uh, throughout the chapter, eventually becoming the airborne toxic event. Yeah. <laughs> And the various rumors and informations and ideas that like, oh, but it's supposed to be this, but it's supposed to do that. And the various side effects that the contamination can have that it's, 
I don't remember them all, but it's supposedly like headaches and vomiting or, or, or like, and there's like um, sweating palms and Deja headaches. vu. Deja vu, <laughs> which is uh, incredibly interesting. Uh, and eventually it's like coma and death. And they they refuse Jack, uh, I think Jack and one of his children, like Heinrich, uh, refuse to tell his wife and younger sister because they they were apparently feeling the symptoms as they heard it yeah. or something along those lines. And they were like, we'd better not tell them yeah. uh, just in case. <laughs> yeah, exactly. As if to to reveal the new information would spark in them the the very symptoms that the new information was revealing are supposed to be there <laughs> exactly yeah and there's that interesting thing you just mentioned about the naming of the thing the first the first name that came through the radio was a featherly plume right so kind of oh yes kind of anodyne you know not not so bad featherly plumes can be dealt with and then it's called then they said they've changed the name what are they calling it now a black billowing cloud and then a little bit later they're changing it again it's now a toxic airborne event. <laughs> and um, it, it is it is funny because the way that language shifts and um, frames the reality itself, I think, is, is the point in, in using that sort of device to talk about this uh, this unknown thing. But again, you know, like to bring it back to, to climate change, it's like it started off as, as global warming. Um, that's not so bad. You know, warming, uh, global warming, it gets a little hotter. The summers are a little nicer. Who cares? You know, now it's like, no, this is actually more than just warming. It's this global change. Okay, well, that's that's more broad. It's certainly a little bit more urgent. But, uh, you know, change is, is inevitable. Everything changes. And I now have, have long for a while now been thinking that, like, we need to, to move the dial on this language thing again. Like, I've been using words like climate chaos or the destabilization of the biosphere, maybe not as punchy as climate change, but it gets closer to the reality because warming in and of itself is not a negative thing. Change in and of itself is not a negative thing. Um, but chaos is. Destabilization sure is. And that seems to get more at the point than, than these things. And with, with like naming it global warming, for example, what did the dumbass right-wingers do? Every time it snowed, they'd, they'd make a snowball and say, oh, really? Global warming? Har, har, har. Um, so we had to change it to climate change because those dumbasses were saying global warming can't be real because it snows sometimes. And it's like, oh, my God, we're playing this endless this endless game of trying to just name the thing and trying to uh, agree on the name of the thing, um, which is the second order relation to the thing itself, you know, as opposed to doing anything meaningful to stopping it, regardless of what the fuck you call it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and like, I, I, I mean, one of the ways that I've un- been understanding and thinking about it in just as dramatic terms is like uh, an eco-apocalypse mm. because, you know, that's, that's uh, the consequences and effects are very much like a sort of a collapse and a continuing disaster mm-hmm. as slow and painful as it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think that is that's that's too hyperbolic by any means either. We're yeah. we're at one point two degree degrees of warming from pre industrial levels. The the initial threshold was one point five degrees. We gotta keep it below that. Well we're gonna blow past that in the next decade or two. Um and now the the new threshold is is two degrees of warming, and that is going to be roughly these are nonlinear 
processes, so it's not precisely double. But you know, we're at roughly around one degree of warming so far, two degrees. You can just think of this this sort of compounding effect of the wildfires and the droughts and you know all the all the terrible things happening. And that's that's already going to be an utter catastrophe that humans have never lived through um, in human history, and it is the best case scenario. And then really, once and I don't think people fully grasp this. But once you start talking about three degrees of warming, four degrees of warming, you're talking about triggering the release of methane from under the ocean and permafrost. You're talking about feedback loops. In some sense, the Amazon no longer being a carbon sink but being a net emitter, at least a portion of it, is a, an example of a feedback loop. Um, mm. And, and it, now it's emitting. Now it's now it's actively, instead of taking carbon out of the air, it's actively putting more into the air. That's a classic feedback loop. We're already seeing that at 1.2 degrees of warming. And so the stakes are fucking high, and people really don't understand that when we talk about every degree of warming, we are talking about almost exponential growth in the, the catastrophic effects that it'll have. Anything over, and I, I truly believe this based on hours and hours and hours of deep research. I take this stuff incredibly seriously. I obsess over it. Anything over four, five, six degrees of warming, it's game over for civilization. Human societies all over the planet will collapse. And the rate of warming is unprecedented. So, for example, at the end of the last ice age, roughly 10,000 years ago, as the as the Earth is coming out of this glacial period into an interglacial period, there's obviously this dramatic warming that melts all the the glaciers and the ice that, you know, came down from North America. New York City was covered in 3,000, you know, feet of of glacial ice, etc. That's an, a dramatic warming period by any stretch of the imagination. It took roughly 900 years in that process of de- of, of thawing out 900 years to raise the global average temperature one degree. We've done that in 65 years. Um, so the rate of warming is utterly unprecedented. And then there's this lag effect um, so that, you know, the, the consequences of even 1.2 degrees of warming still have not fully been felt. And if we stop carbon emitting magically tonight, um, there's still going to be decades of a continued warming that's already baked into the system. So, I mean, this is the stuff that absolutely drives me um, drives me fucking crazy and and scares the shit out of me. No, absolutely, and as it does, as and it is very real. I mean, we're just talking about Seattle having an absolutely terrifying heat wave, and the same goes for various sections in Canada. Mm-hmm. Currently, like floods in Europe, so it's <laughs> it's terrifying. It's awful. It, it, there's there's no real exaggeration to it to calling it as a disaster, an an ongoing disaster, mm-hmm. an ongoing apocalypse, an ongoing collapse. Mm-hmm. It's it's just a stronger interpretive or naming framework to it. Exactly. That grants it the the emergency and sense of urgency that it that it rightfully deserves. Exactly. In the sen- in the time when uh, when that is ev- that grows all the more crucial by the day. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I feel like this is this is definitely a good point to spend quite a bit of time talking and, and, and thinking over because you know it's it's about the relationships and the stakes <laughs> mm-hmm. to all of us and to all that we want, to all that we find important. Okay. So to consider, interpret, and, and, and take the time to understand this is pretty important even if incredibly difficult to handle absolutely yeah and i think that's one of the benefits of analyzing a book like this right you might think 
you know, what the hell does a book written, a postmodern work of literature by Don DeLillo from the 80s have to do with anything that's relevant today? And that could lead some people to say this is solipsistic nonsense. But it's like, well, we're in the process of extracting meaning from it and elucidating things that are themes shared in the book that then we can apply to our own situation and have, I think, an important and urgent talk about an important and urgent crisis um, that organically just flows forth from us discussing an otherwise, you know, um, nondescript book that most people haven't even heard of. (laughs) Yeah. And like, I think it's, I guess, one of the things, especially as you were mentioning it earlier, and about the this post, as as a postmodern work, and this idea of irony and sarcasm, and this idea that this is the best way to understanding this, and I, I, I don't agree. I am, <laughs> I very much am against like sort of this idea of like this irony poisoning or this extreme irony. Mm-hmm. Although that can be fun and entertaining at times for more extensive critique and for more deep, uh, be creatively or intellectually and critically. Uh, I think this a certain sincerity is more important or more useful. Mm-hmm. And that's why a lot of the time I've been engaging and questioning um, the sense of like dystopias as, you know, f- literary fiction because and understanding these effects. And, and this book has a sort of realist aspect of this, but also as like, what do these endless stories, endless dystopias that have been, uh, publicized and marketed and continue to be uh, share about uh, our condition and how can they be so much in a sense that it stops being useful. Um, I'm thinking uh, of, of a few different things, but amongst them uh, a text by Ken Stanley Robinson when he, where he talks about that. I'll link it in the show notes and a discussion on Coffee with Comrades with The Future's a Mixtape, mm. talking about this idea of utopia anti-utopia and anti-anti-utopia and how to engage with this very notion of like hope and this idea that like in order to struggle in the in the small sense of every day of like a a better tomorrow or you know the things that we fight for in what we believe in what we act upon and that it is important to have some sense as well of what is it we're after? What is it we're trying to create beyond also or just side by side with what we're trying to avert uh, in terms of this disaster and apocalypse? Yeah. And I mean, discovering this idea of hope, this idea of utopia as or even as anti-anti-utopia as an interesting framework to interpret and to understand that allows. And I think it's important in terms of climate change but or in climate disaster but, or and in other works or in other ideas that it can help like move on or that it can help carry on step by step because this terror, this horror can be paralyzing at times and especially on an individual aspect that can be that can be horrifying that can be really really scary, really painful and I think that last section on this fear of death as it being a sort of there is no action against that. It's an interesting parallel to even take that a lot of the time, how do we act? How do we consider acting upon these horrors when the fear of them is so immense? Mm -hmm. And I think to me, and that has been helping me face it, like even in terms of like understanding climate disaster, because uh, I think that this, this utopianism is very critically. So of course, 
can help push forward this notion of hope. Because I, I'm thinking, for example, like at a very young age, and this was like, I don't know, seven, eight years old, uh, I was aware of this idea of like global warming and climate change and uh, greenhouse effect. But it was very much a sort of alarmist sense of like, oh, this is what's going to happen. This is what's going to be. And it terrified me in a very deep level um, <laughs> to the sense where, where for me to engage with it critically in a sense where I just don't, where I am, am just left terrified and without action. It took, it took some quite over a decade and a half uh, to get where I am now and like, okay, I understand this. And it still terrifies me on a very, very deep level um, because of that and especially learning more of it now. But the actual critique and the effort and like connecting all this, understanding like how this happens, the way this is happening, the way this has happened and why this is so important. And even more so, this is important in order to achieve that or X or Y and to achieve something better, something, you know, this new world in every and any sense of the word so <laughs> yeah i that's something that i always find important and that i'm finding really key in all that i'm doing to have it some sense of hope some sense of a little thing beyond or at least through yeah yeah uh i love what you said right there and i have a couple things that uh, dovetail exactly with what you said the 13-year-old me, I remember watching, a, it was a TV show, like Discovery Channel or something, in the early aughts, and it was talking about the scenarios of climate change. It's one of the re first times that I have any memory of being presented with the reality of climate change, and it was, you know, it was visually presented to me in the form of this show. It's like, this is what's going to happen by like 2015 and 2020, and it was just, it was a horror show. Now, in retrospect, it sort of was hyperbolic in its presentation of what actually was going to happen. Like 2015, they were like, you know, Miami's going to be underwater and stuff like that. And so that it didn't pan out exactly in the time span, but I remember it shaking the hell out of me and scaring me to my absolute core. Um, and, and yeah, so I, I share that childhood sort of experience of, of confronting that reality. And then as I get older, learning the, the nuances and the, and the outline of it more deeply um, and then your point about irony, I think, is incredibly true. And that's a, a weakness with postmodern literature more broadly. It sort of it played its role, right? In this certain period of yeah. time, uh, it did what irony does, which is deconstructs, mocks, satirizes, tears down. That's what, that's what irony is there for. But what irony can't do is build anything, right? It can't offer a vision. Exactly. Uh, it can't work towards that utopia that you're talking about. And that's where sincerity comes in, and that's where postmodernism fails. It's now hit its limits, and now there's talk of metamodernism, right, or this new synthesis and incorporation of of like modernist sincerity with postmodern irony, and and putting them in their proper places, and not overemphasizing one over the other, where sincerity steers into sentimentality, and I, I irony steers into utter detachment, and and a lack of really identity because. If your whole identity is being ironic, you're not building anything. You're not presenting anything constructive. You're just tearing things down. Um, and so maybe that tearing down process, right, is is necessary for the new building up yeah. process. So, again, postmodernism plays its historical role on that front. Uh, but now it's time to move on, and, and I could not agree more. 
Um, I, I heard a quote recently that I think gets at what you and I are just talking about here as, as far as hope goes, right? Cause you got to have hope and you got to keep fighting. You can't just, mm-hmm. you can't be a defeatist. And, and somebody, uh, I heard somebody recently say that the defeatist takes comfort in inevitability in the same way that the denialist takes comfort in uncertainty. Um, but both are delusions, right? Both are, uh, sort of a bargaining with the world. Well, if it's going to happen anyways, then what the fuck good is it to care about anything or do anything? Screw it. Let it all burn. That's nihilism. That's reactionary yeah. misanthropy, and it doesn't get us anywhere. So d- defeatism is the other end of denialism, and both have to be combated within ourselves and within our body politics. Yeah, it, it's understanding these these both potentially good postures in a... But, yeah truly dialectical sense Mm -hmm. there's like how do we engage with both the deconstruction that irony allows us to do and that times it can be really really good and really interesting with the with the sincerity without falling into this sentimentality which can blur the lines or or help lose ourselves in that too Mm -hmm. so it, it is in engaging both these aspects and going beyond what this main core of postmodernism was to engage with it in a sense like okay you've been useful in this sense but like how can we take from what you were doing in order to engage with this building aspect i mean i think one of the things that i have been thinking a lot about on uh, in terms of critique uh, in everything i do really critique is building something is building something more in from the very literal small sense that's like it's not just uh, a retelling of a story. It's just not like, a, oh, this is what the, the things it does wrong. Uh, but like, oh, what is it doing right? What is it doing wrong? What is it doing? How can it do that? Why? Understanding these intricacies and then building this analysis and then building something further. Mm-hmm. So, and, and in that sense, I can engage like th- at times the, because it is kind of amusing, uh, <laughs> this ironic deconstruction while also working with the sincerity in order to like, okay, so what are we understanding here? What are we trying to do? And why does this work? Or why does this doesn't? And putting both to use to good criticisms, to good analysis, to good intellectual work in order to engage as well with good practice. Mm-hmm. I- ideally, none of these things are separate. Yeah. Yeah. Incredibly, incredibly well said. I, I could not, could not agree more. And, and that, 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 um, uh, that weakness of of postmodern irony is is present in the book, right? Because it is a critique yeah. of everything America. It's a critique of capitalism, of the eco crisis, of the shallowness of the culture, of consumption, all of these things. But you know, the book doesn't and can't offer a solution. <laughs> it doesn't even yeah. pretend to try. <laughs> and I think that in and of itself shows uh, the limitations of of that postmodern ironic posture. Yeah, it, it can't offer any type of solution in any front, not in terms of sociability, not in terms of economics, not in terms of politics. There's no type of solution in no sphere. It is just, yeah. Exactly. Exactly right. Yeah, I think this, oh, I, I don't know. I think we've been pretty thorough, or at the very least, we've talked about some of the more interesting kind of key aspects of you know, what we were talking about and what we were considering about the novel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, is there anything else that you want to add that we didn't touch on exactly? I mean, there was a lot about the, the family relationships which we didn't touch on mm-hmm. and that are, in a sense, the these other aspects of, you know, the breaking down of communication, being affected by 
by technology, by by the television, by the radio. Yeah, there's there's a lot to it, and there's more to this novel than we can uh, do in, in in an hour and a bit. <laughs> mm-hmm. But yeah, is there anything else that you want to add? Is there anything else that you want to mention from what we talked about, from the things we didn't either? Sure. Yeah, there's two two quick points that we didn't really get a touch on, but I think are are important. One, it's just mm-hmm. interesting because throughout the book, there's this idea that Jack uh, puts forward, I think during a lecture, it just sort of comes out of him. He doesn't even know where it came from. This idea that all plots tend toward death. And that is a little foreshadowing because the, this book itself ends in this gruesome, bloody act of violence, whereas the entire rest of the, the story is really sort of comforted away in, in a home setting. There's no bursts of violence and even the the toxic airborne event sort of is very subtle in its in its impact on the human body it's not like people are vomiting out poisons or anything like that so uh, just a little interesting note uh to to carry with you if you if you are listening to this and decide that you have some time to kill and might want to go through this book but the, the last thing I, I did want to say that i thought was kind of important is this fear of death uh circling this this lack of of, of identity um so mm-hmm. jack clearly he lacks any fundamental sense of self and is has to resort to this cultivated image, um, particularly in times of distress or anytime he's on campus, for example, he wears these dark sunglasses and this, this academic gown. And that shows that he is an important person. He's a chair of a department. And those are sort of his things that when he's walking around on campus, people know that's who he is. And in moments where he feels like he is in danger, or even when the the toxic airborne event is just happening and he's trying to convince the rest of his family, this isn't going to impact us because I'm an academic. I'm I'm, I'm a professional upper middle class. This thing happens to to poor people in ghettos on the fringes of town. Um, It can't possibly hurt. Literally hiding behind his status as if it will literally protect him um, from a chemical exposure. Um, and, and we also notice this lack of identity is intimately tied in with his fear of death. Um, he's clinging, he's grasping onto this constructed sense of self, um, but it's really hollow. And that hollowness sort of is the abyss that when he looks into it, he sees his own mortality and it, it terrifies him. And uh, he has this one interesting encounter, and this weaves together the consumer culture with the fear of death and lack of identity. And in this hardware store, um, he's not wearing his gown and his glasses, right? And so somebody from the university notices him. It's like, damn, I barely noticed you, you know, without your glasses on, etc. They have this little back and forth at the checkout counter. Um, and, and the guy says to him, you know, I hope you don't take offense to this, but without your glasses and without your gown, you look like a big, harmless, aging, indistinct sort of guy. <laughs> Just like a throwaway comment. <laughs> and um, Jack acts because he's a narrator. He acts like it doesn't bother him. But the next passage, he goes on this manic <laughs> shopping spree um, which I thought is really a hilarious passage where he's just talking about just throwing money around and his kids are like super happy because he's like, buy anything you want, buy it all, you know, and he's like just in this feverish mania of, of buying. And and there it is, right? That's one of the main themes of the book. Um, in in the in the the abyss where uh, something like a self could be, that hole in your soul, right, that void that you feel, American society offers you nothing but consumption to fill that void now that 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 act of consumption presented to us as the cure-all for existential despair doesn't ever and can't possibly solve the problem and in fact the the shopping spree is followed by a crash where everybody self-isolates in their room and have to like you know sort of regain their composure uh, without talking to one another for a couple hours 
And, you know, nothing is, is fundamentally solved. But in that moment of acute anxiety surrounding who he is, um, it's very telling that he goes on this insane shopping spree. And I, I think that that really, you know, highlights the uh, main theme. And at the end, he's talking to Winnie, the, the I think she's a neurobiologist or uh, some very smart person on campus in the in the field. Uh, he's asking her to study this pharmaceutical pill, blah, blah, blah. Um, but he talks a little bit about his fear of death. And they're sort of having this back back and forth. And Jack is like, so you're saying that fear is is self-awareness raised to another level, like becoming too self-aware can result in this fear and this anxiety. And then the other character, Winnie, she responds, self, self, self. If death can be seen as less strange and unreferenced, your sense of self in relation to death will diminish. And so will your fear. And I don't know if DeLillo's point here was the point that I'm about to make. But as somebody who comes out of a, a Buddhist context and has been practicing Buddhism for over a decade and really into Buddhist philosophy, there is this idea that enlightenment, right, in simplest terms in the Buddhist context, is this collapse of the false sense of self, this center of attention that appropriates all experience and references all experience back to uh, an assumed core within you, right? We, we, If I asked you, where is your sense of self? Like, where is your self really at? If people think about it enough, they'll say it's like behind my eyes and between my ears, somewhere up in the head, sort of, you know, controlling my body like a machine or something. And this is a Cartesian dualism, um, a false sense of, of a psychological split. And when that sense of self becomes the orienting principle of your life and it's false, right, it's not actually there – that creates a bunch of anxiety, and one of the main ways that that anxiety is expressed is through your fear of death. This trembling little self, which on some subconscious level you know is an illusion, um, but though you can't come to explicit grips with that, is trembling in the face of its own annihilation. And to die before you die, in a spiritual context, to eradicate that false sense of self um, through spiritual practices, sometimes through large doses of psychedelics momentarily, um, is to release that trembling sense of a self and therefore the fear of death dissipates with it. So if you ask any, um, you know, highly achieved or enlightened um, Zen master or Tibetan Buddhist through the ages, they will see, they will co continually say in their own way, one of the things achieved by enlightenment is a complete eradication of any sense of fear of death. It just no longer makes any sense to be scared of death because the self that I was scared that was going to die, I've seen through that illusion and it's not even there. <laughs> so that might be taken quite a bit further than DeLillo himself wanted to take it. But that little passage really reminded me of that. And that's been crucial in my overcoming of my existential anxiety around death that I mentioned earlier in this episode that, you know, has have really brought to a boiling point in my mid-20s um, where I was really for many months obsessed with the thought of my own mortality and radically depressed and anxious because of it. And it was only through a sort of spiritual breakthrough in which myself, my sense of self dissolved and what replaced it was like a, a connection to the whole, a, a sense that I was much bigger than me, I was all of humanity and perhaps even all of nature. Um, my my relationship to death has ever since that little breakthrough been dramatically changed. And it all revolves around these concepts. So again, probably too far afield, but I thought it was worth mentioning at the end here. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, I, I think this extensive focus on the self uh, by these characters and by the whole story 
um, to be broken up such as this, regardless of intention and how far the book itself can take us or not. Uh, I think it's still a brilliant point to be made. Mm. So yeah, going further or understanding beyond the self or fracturing what the self is or can be is definitely a good discussion. And uh, because we're mentioning multiple podcasts on this episode, I will also mention <laughs> the collaboration that Horrorfanger did with Labour Kyle mm. on Nightbreed, where that discussion comes up as well. And in an incredibly interesting way that like the self is not one thing. Nice, uh, <laughs> nice. Uh, so yeah, lo- lots, lot- lots to take from this episode and from beyond, uh, of which I'm very grateful for. So yeah, uh, anything else, or shall we wrap this up? Let's wrap it up. This was a this was a really great d- discussion, and I don't think I could have um, brought all these points out without having this back and forth with you. Because reading a book in isolation is one thing, but actually working through it and talking with somebody else who might have a different perspective on the book, it brings out so much more. So I- I'm really humbled and honored to be able to come on um, your show and-, and talk about it. Oh, thank you, Brad. Like, that's sort of the point. It, it's w- when we read something, we think, even when we write about it, it, it's still not the same as like spending some time with someone else and like thinking and considering and reflecting and bringing other things. It's it, it sort of be- it was the original idea of this show all along, and especially now it's like bringing more guests and doing this, even as I do this myself. Um, but bringing others is it's definitely the best thing to have these conversations, to have these moments of like friendship, of learning, of camaraderie. It's pretty amazing. What can I say? Absolutely. So yeah, uh, thank you for listening, everyone. Now, uh, I I believe most people uh, know of of Brad and Rev left, uh, but um, where can people find you and support what you do? And if there's anything in particular that you've been doing or people can look forward to, I know you're you're always doing a lot of different fun projects. (laughs) So, you know. Yeah. Um, so everything that I do, you can find at revolutionaryleftradio.com. That has all three shows, Rev Left, Red Menace, and Gorilla History, our Patreon, our Twitter, um, ways to support us and everything else. So uh, if you're at all interested in, in pursuing that, definitely check that out. And as for upcoming stuff, lots of stuff is always boiling uh, up, up to the brim here. <laughs> Nothing particularly stands out, but like I say, Gorilla History, we really focus on proletarian and decolonial history on red menace we talk about political theory and philosophy and rev left is just my vehicle to explore um, whatever i'm obsessed with at the moment so that that constantly is taking on new shapes and forms um so yeah whatever whatever fits your fancy particularly go check it out yeah and and there's there's a lot to rev left and a lot of different people a lot of different guests a lot of different conversations i was there at one point many years ago Mm -hmm. i have to have you back on soon yeah oh, oh Yes, always. Um, and uh, especially one that I remembered at the beginning, but I forgot to mention, one on mourning and death, mm-hmm. an amazing conversation as well. So, you know, RevLeft itself can, can give you further tools to this conversation itself. So definitely go support and follow and listen to RevLeft, Red Menace and Guerrilla Radio. All amazing shows with content that like it's... It's so good. What can I say? There's there's a lot to it, and it's very different and very good. So yeah, go go listen, go listen. Uh, Thank you, my friend. Of course. And, and from me, like I, we have the reading corner, which is a sort of uh, I go over a text, either either academic or fictional that I've read and or, or thought about th- this past month, and write a bit about it. So a, a bit kind of half academic, half the creative aspect, but share a bit about my writing too. And also the what I've been dubbing the writer's desk, as I've been considering this relationship between 
uh, from the point of view of writing that, of writing fiction and the question of politics in that. How do you engage with that in your own writing hmm. beyond the analytical, which is very difficult to do. And I wanted to do this episode before I did this month because especially the, this idea of the irony and the postmodern narratives is what I want to talk about this month for it. Uh, I don't know what I'm going to do, but it's going to be fun. Awesome. <laughs> So keep an eye out for those. And yeah, you can find me on Twitter at leftpagepod or at frankgothic and on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash leftpage. And yeah, uh, we have some interesting stuff that I've been working on, some other great guests and ideas and books. And I'm always planning something fun, something interesting and some amazing people to talk about books and fiction and politics and everything. So yeah, uh, thank you so much, Brett. Thank you so much, everyone. It's been a pleasure to have you on and I hope people enjoyed and um, we'll listen to RevLeft, we'll listen to Red Menace and Gorilla, Gorilla Radio and we'll carry on listening to the left page. So yeah, thank you so much for listening, everyone. Love and solidarity. Love and solidarity. Love and solidarity.